Has anybody ever participated in a three-legged race? You set up in teams and you, you strap your inside legs together. It's, it's important, though, for a successful three-legged race to be run that the will of the two people on this team, that their wills are in alignment, that they understand what the goal is and the way to move forward. Because the worst thing to happen in a three-legged race is for two of those legs to want to go in opposite directions. Or one to want to be in control and resisting the other when you're trying to move the, the middle one forward. If you want to hurt your partner, if you want to lose the race, then do your own thing and do not align your will. But if, if you want to come across the finish line successful and you want to finish the race and be victorious, then your wills must be aligned. We have been looking through the books of First and Second Samuel over the past several months now. And we've seen uh, that our God has granted and given His people a king of His own choosing. And He has promised that through David and his line, He will bring a kingdom that will last forever. Not just ruling over Israel, but ruling over the nations. And we've seen that the fulfillment of that great promise and that king is Jesus. The Old Testament uh, is Christian Scripture. It gives us the worldview by which we understand and interpret the New Testament. And if we want to understand fully who Jesus is, we must understand what the Old Testament tells us about David, the king that God promised would come from him in this everlasting kingdom. What we've seen is that David, this, this king that God chose, has really been making a mess of God's kingdom and of his people. And we're going to see this week, as we look in chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19, that as this coming kingdom is realized, one that would bring life not just to the people of Israel, but to the nations, if it is going to uh, benefit the king and the people and the nations, it is important, it is necessary for the will of the king to be in alignment with the will of God. For if not, complication and trouble happen for the king, for the people, for the world. So if you would, look with me. We're in chapter 18 of the book of 2 Samuel. Follow along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats. It begins on page 269. Uh, this narrative actually uh, goes over into chapter 19. So we're going to read all the way through verse 8 of chapter 19 this morning. So please follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word as we hear from Him this morning. Remember where we left off uh, last time, uh, Absalom, David's son, has formed this rival kingdom. David has fled, and now Absalom and his, his armies are in, in pursuit. Then David mustered the men who were with him, and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, 
one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss was, uh, there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life, when there's nothing that's hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Absalom's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised up over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that Yahweh has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you will not carry news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. And Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up on the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called out to the gate and said, see another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. 
The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahamaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahamaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be Yahweh your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahamaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servants, sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand there. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for Yahweh has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up into the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house uh, to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by Yahweh, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you uh, again for your reliable, preserved word. We thank you that it is not myth or fable or made up by men, but it's the very word of God, living and active We pray, Holy Spirit, uh, that you would apply your word to the hearts of all of us here, bringing us to Jesus, comforting us in Jesus, showing us our need for him. Would he be glorified through the preaching of your word today? In Christ's name, amen. Uh, So, kids, if you want to keep track of uh, a few words this morning, I have three of them for you. You can listen for the words wrath. You can listen for the word grief. You can listen for the word salvation. So wrath, grief, and salvation. And if you want to draw a three-legged race for me, you can do that too. Wrath, grief, and salvation. Why those three words? Because remember what we said. 
Uh, as, as God's people read this chapter, what it should begin to do in our hearts is give us a longing and a hoping for a king whose will will be aligned with that of God. Because what we, be, we see in this chapter is that David, God's chosen king, his will is not aligned with that of his God. Uh, the first thing that we see is that we, we should hope for and long for a king whose will is aligned with God and his wrath. Notice at first, the, the, the command that David gave to Joab and uh, to Abishai and to Ittai concerning Absalom. You remember what he said? Look down there in verse 5. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. It says everybody heard this command. In fact, it's brought up again when this uh, unnamed guy is talking to Joab. And he says uh, um, that he heard what the king had commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. Notice here what we're seeing. What is David's will? David's intention for Absalom? It's gentleness. It's protection. He's commanded that. This should bring to mind something that we saw last week. We heard last week about God's intentions, His will, His desire for Absalom. In fact, the same language is is used there. Here it's talking about what David commanded about Absalom. But what we saw last week in verse 14 of chapter 17 was what God had ordained or commanded concerning Absalom. And what was it? Look back over in, in that chapter. Chapter 17, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for Yahweh had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that Yahweh might bring harm upon Absalom. Uh Uh-oh. Now what we have are two opposing wills. God has willed one thing, harm to Absalom. David is willing something different. Gentleness. Protection. They're not just off by a slight degree. They have opposite desires and intentions. What is going to happen with this three-legged race? Notice, as we see in this chapter, the focus of what we have here is the author drawing our attention to this conflict of wills as it points out through this chapter as well what God's intention is, what His will is to pour out His just wrath upon Absalom. Notice there in verse 7. The armies went out. The men of Israel were fighting against the servants of David. And notice what it says in verse 7. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss was great on that day. 20,000 men. God is judging Israel for aligning themselves and their allegiance 
with a king that God didn't choose. But notice, the author gives us this, this second statement. The, the battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. The forest devoured more than the sword. Why this comment? Well, it's showing us that what's going on here is not just due to the military might and strategy of David. God is battling and fighting against those who are opposing him. Uh, there's other places throughout the Old Testament where when the creation brings about death in the context of people who are in rebellion against God, it is a demonstration and a sign and a pointing to God's just and good punishing and pouring out His wrath on them. Think about examples in the Old Testament. Noah and the flood. Creation. The rains come and flood and wipe out humanity. God's just punishment. What about during the Exodus, coming out of Egypt? The Red Sea crushes over and wipes out the army of Pharaoh. God's just wrath and punishment on his enemies and the enemies of his people. Going into the promised land. There's multiple times in the battles that are fought there because it needs to be clear that this isn't uh, just Israel and Moses with these wacky world-dominating ideas of going in there, but that it is God's wrath on those who have refused to acknowledge him as the one true and living God. There's times where hail kills more people than the sword. Hornets come and kill people. Why? It's pointing us and showing us God is the one who is doing the punishing and pouring out his wrath. The author wants us to see that here in this passage. David's intentions and God's intentions are opposed. They are not in alignment as it concerns the will of God. In fact, it continues to go on. We see that too with Absalom. Where is he caught? It's beautiful hair stuck in a tree. In a tree. Again, the forest captures him. The scriptures also brings up imagery. Cursed is he who hangs in a tree. Or the, the way that Absalom was buried. Do you remember that, that account? It says in verse 17, They took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. There's another guy. One who disobeyed and rebelled against the king. King Yahweh was Achan. And his death and burial was one where stones were heaped upon him. Evidence of curse. God is pouring out his wrath on Absalom. God is at work here. David is in opposition to what God's will is as it concerns his just wrath on Absalom. This usurper to the throne and one who has aligned himself and set himself up against the Lord and his anointed. Even the announcement and the proclamation that Abishai and this, uh, the, the Cushite or Ahimaaz and the Cushite bring. Ahimaaz says in verse 28, Blessed be Yahweh your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the King. Or what the Cushite says, good news for my Lord the King, for Yahweh has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose against you. 
May all the enemies of my Lord be like that young man. It's clear. This passage is telling us God's will is to pour out his wrath on Absalom, this rebel. And David's will is opposed to that. God wants wrath and harm. David wants gentleness and protection. Just should do and work in us is, is recognizing something's not right. Because David is supposed to be ruling on the throne of God. He's going to be representing him and leading his people according to the will of his God. It should lead us to long for and want a king whose will is always in alignment with that of God. As we continue to read in the Old Testament, we find that those guys are few and far between until David's greater son comes, Jesus. Look with me. You flip to Matthew chapter 26. This is a historical account of the life and teachings of Jesus. Here, as Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying to his Father. Notice what he says there in verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said, Couldn't you watch with me for an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, and he came to them, and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words. The, the cup. The cup that Jesus is talking about. He's picking up again on Old Testament language, Old Testament imagery. He's speaking of the cup of wrath. And here, Jesus, as he, he contemplates God's will, knowing that His Father has sent Him to die, that this God's will and intention was for the servant to be bruised and suffer for our transgressions, for the wrath of God to be poured out on Him. Jesus here looks at God's intention and God's will for wrath that we be poured out on His Son and Jesus here brings and has His will in alignment with that of the Father. Some people see this here as being uh, like they're, they're competing. Like Jesus doesn't want to die. But remember, what Jesus has been communicating all throughout the Gospels, He's told His, his disciples, that's what He came to do. He came to do the will of His Father. In fact, Jesus actually says, I have the authority to lay down my life. And take it up again. For the joy set before Him, Christ endured the cross, despising its shame. Here, notice, what is the will of Jesus? The will of Jesus is to do 
the will of the Father. Notice what he says, not my will, but yours be done. What's the greater desire? If it is possible that this pass, then let it pass. But if this is the only way, then I want your will to be done. Your decree, your purposes, your intention in pouring out your just wrath, I will follow you. The king perfectly has his will in alignment with the Father. Think about what would have resulted if here, in this situation, the will of the king was not in alignment with the will of his father. He would no longer be the sufficient savior. For our will to be outside of the will of God is sin. And Jesus is the perfect one who always did everything pleasing of his father. This wrath is not wrath poured out on Jesus for his sin. This, Jesus recognizes, is the just wrath of God so that as the scriptures proclaim, God would be both just and the justifier of the one who places their faith in Jesus. And so our good and faithful king has his will in alignment with the will of our God as our God pours out his just wrath for sin. But it's not just that we want a king whose will is aligned with God in wrath. We also see the need here in this passage that we have a king whose will is aligned with God in grief. Notice in verse 5, back over in chapter 18. What the king says, Deal gently for my sake with my son, Absalom. Comes up again with the unnamed man's response. The king says, for my sake, protect the young man. Uh, David's recognizing and thinking about himself, the sorrow, the pain, the struggle that is going to result if his son dies. He would like to be spared of that. He's mourning. He's grieving. We see it once Absalom dies, as it's reiterated over and over again, bringing the focus on David's grief. In fact, a lot of the, the, the center of, uh, of this at the, at the bottom uh, of, uh, of page 270, we see the emphasis and the reminder of David's grief. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The king goes and he, and he weeps. The people recognize that he's mourning and is weeping. The king is grieving. We see this reiterated and re, uh, repeated multiple times. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is weeping over the loss of his son. Which is understandable. David here comes to the realization again that his sin has affected the life of one of his children. But do you remember back in chapter 12 how David responded in the midst of his grief due to the implications that his sin had in the life of one of his children? Back in chapter 12, it tells us that when he heard that his infant son through Bathsheba was going to die, he immediately 
comes and mourns and prays and falls on his face before his God, praying and fasting and calling out to God for mercy and seeking his God. And after the child dies, David arises, he goes and he cleans himself up, and then he goes and worships and finds strength and encouragement in the goodness and the character of our God. But notice what is absent here. No mention of God. There is no recorded psalm that directs us that David's heart had any focus and desire in this moment, in his grief, to do what he encouraged God's people to do over and over again. When I'm afraid, where do I go? I go to my God. In my sorrow, who do I turn to? My God, the one who bottles up my tears, the one who I know his goodness and his judgments are good and true. And when I'm confused and I don't know what to to do and I don't understand what he's doing, what do I do? I come and I worship him and he gives me enlightenment and understanding from his scriptures and his character and I rest in him. But here, David in his grief, his will is not aligned with that of his father because he refuses to come to his God in comfort. We, we need a king. We need a king whose will is going to be aligned with that of our God in everything, even in the midst of his grief. Let's go back. Go back to, to Matthew chapter 26. Again, another context of both wrath and grief. How do we see Jesus responding? Look in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 26, page 832 if you're in one of the black Bibles. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father. In his sorrow, in his trouble, as Jesus in his humanity contemplates the great suffering that he is about to endure and the trouble that he will go through in order to save and redeem God's people in his grief and in his trouble, where does he go? His will is in complete alignment with that of his father because where does he go? To him. In his grief, in his trouble, in his sorrow, he goes to the one who provides strength. And in fact, in Luke's account of this, it tells us in the midst of Jesus praying, the Lord sends an angel who strengthens him. How good it is to see a king that when things are going well, he's walking closely with his God. And when things are going horribly, he still flees and hopes and rests in his God, his Father. What, what about you? What about me? In your, in your times of, of deep sorrow and trouble, when you don't understand what God is doing, Maybe even when you think what's going on, you disagree with God. You want to correct Him. 
You want to instruct him and say, you should have done things this way. And how dare you do that in my life or the life of of someone I love? In the midst of those questions and that confusion, that sorrow, that trouble, where do you go? Just in bitterness and calling out against God? Or do you go into his presence to communicate your struggles and your fears and your trouble to him, knowing that he's good, knowing that you are one of his children. He gives good things to his people. And he's at work, just as we saw last week, in the midst of everything, bringing about his good purposes in your life. Do we go and align our will with the will of the Father and ask him to do his work to align us with Him, that we might find comfort and hope in the midst of our trouble, resting in His character, His sovereignty, His perfect will and understanding and not our own? How grateful are we to have a King who even in His grief aligns His will with that of our God. We see that in Jesus we have a king whose will is aligned with God in his, in his wrath, whose will is aligned with God in his grief. And lastly, we need a king whose will is aligned with the will of God in salvation. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 19, back over in 2 Samuel. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. It seems that David here has a very different response and understanding of the salvation and victory and deliverance that God has worked on behalf of his people. Remember what we saw back up in verse, uh, verses 28 and following in chapter 18, how what God has done is described. Blessed be Yahweh your God who has delivered up these men that raised their hand against you. The Cushite says, Yahweh has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. God has worked salvation, deliverance for his people. He has preserved his king. He has struck down the enemies of God's people. He is moving his kingdom forward. Yet David does not recognize this as salvation. David does not praise and celebrate his God for his work of salvation on behalf of his people. David has a very different understanding of what salvation should have looked like. David here, his, his will is, again, in complete contrast with that of his God. Notice how Joab describes uh, David's actions. In verse 5, Joab came into the house of the king. You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who this day have saved your life in the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. 
Does that sound familiar to what the people proclaimed and said to David when he wanted to go out into the battle? Listen to what they said back over in chapter 18, in verse 3. The men said, you will not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send help from the city. The enemies of God's people, opposing kings of God's kingdom, do not care about the people of God. The one who should care about the people of God and celebrate and proclaim the greatness of God for the salvation He brings should be the one who is on the throne. And He's not. Instead of encouraging the people to celebrate God and His salvation, David turns the people's hearts to a place of shame and to act as if they have been defeated. Because for David, what would salvation have looked like? Notice what he said. Look at the end of chapter 18 and verse 33. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Would that have saved Absalom? No. The death of God's king would not save Absalom in his rebellion. Why? Both of them are deserving of the wrath of God. Both of them are adulterers. Both of them are murderers. Both of them deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on them. God in his mercy said he would forgive David. But in Absalom who continues to harden his heart against God, God has said, I will judge him. And what my salvation will look like is saving my people and defeating their enemies. See, the good thing for us is that we have a king whose will is aligned with our God and what salvation looks like and what is necessary. The death of David could secure and deliver no one, not even himself, but the death of the greater king who understood that God's wrath needed to be poured out on him and his death would in fact bring salvation for rebels, would bring salvation for those who align themselves up against their God and who call out to him for mercy and guess what the result of his work and his victory is. Not shame. Not defeat, not creeping in as if we've been whooped. Flip to the end of the story. Revelation chapter 19. Just before this, in chapter 18 of Revelation, there's a, a recounting of the defeat and the fall of Babylon, which is symbolic for the enemies of God's people and those who set themselves up against Him and against His kingdom. Listen to the result. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just 
For he has judged the great prostitute, that's a reference back to Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants, their persecutions, their punishment, or their, uh, they're seeking to kill God's people. Once more they cried out, Alleluia! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Alleluia! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. What is the response of the salvation and victory and punishment that King Jesus brings? It's celebration. It's worship. It's proclaiming the greatness and the goodness of a God who I know I deserve to be in the place of Absalom. I know that I deserve to be lumped in with Babylon and experience the just judgment of God. But in His mercy and His grace, the Lamb was slain in my place. And in Him, we have victory because the wrath of God has been satisfied through the finished work of Jesus. And so we shrink in shame no more. But we proclaim and we celebrate and we praise the victorious salvation that our God has brought us. What a contrast between David, who leads his people in mourning the salvation that God brings and being ashamed of it. But when we understand what we deserve and who Jesus is and what he has done for us, it should move us to celebrate the salvation that was the will of God to bring for His people. This is the good news of the Gospel. That Jesus, our King, His will was aligned with that of God in wrath, in grief, and in salvation. And in His mercy and His grace, we are beneficiaries of all that He has done for us. Let's pray. Jesus, our King, we worship You. We thank You for Your perfections and Your power and Your might and Your majesty and Your suffering. We pray that You would humble us before You. It would proclaim You and Your grace and the undeserved favor You've extended to us. We exalt You as our great King. We thank You that You perfectly lived, perfectly died, perfectly rose, and You will rule and reign for eternity in righteousness. In Christ's name, Amen.